Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. In the evangelical church, I heard more than a thousand Sunday sermons. Do you want to guess how many sermons were taught by women? I'll give you a minute to do the math. Zero. It's zero. Zero percent. I did hear women preach a handful of times at women-only events, the only time this was allowed. And during our decade of casual church searching that I shared at the beginning of this series, I heard a couple women preach. So look, when I was in it, this men-only pastoring and teaching thing felt normal. Yeah, I'd side-eye it a little bit. I knew it wasn't cool that women were excluded. But it wasn't until 2018 that I was devastated by it, that I saw the huge hole in myself and in the church caused by this theology. When I attended the Evolving Faith Conference, heard and saw women preach sharing the stage with men, it cracked my soul open to the expansiveness of how God speaks to humanity. That might sound dramatic, but I felt like I had heard one story for 39 years, and suddenly my eyes could see and my ears could hear the infinite stories the divine had been whispering. That is the power of a diverse church where all members are using their gifts for good and wonder. So, we are done talking to evangelical refugees for the moment. You get a bit of relief from the church drama and trauma. Even I could use a little break. Here's how excited I am about today's friends. Spencer and Maggie. <laughs> what, what? Spencer and Maggie show. <laughs> I met Maggie and Spencer at Emily's storytelling dinner. Remember her, the truth seeker? And when I heard their stories, I knew that you would want to hear them too. They've mostly grown up in a mainline denomination, the Episcopal Church. And even though I knew all Christians are not the same, they gave me a deeper understanding of that diversity. So my name is Spencer, Spencer Hatcher, and I am currently the Dean of Students at an Episcopal Seminary in Berkeley, California called Church Divinity School of the Pacific. Uh, my name is Maggie. I guess my title is technically the Reverend Maggie Foote. Um, I'm an Episcopal priest and I work at All Souls Parish in Berkeley. How does that make you feel when you say that title? Weird. <laughs> I and skipped it. Yeah, you did. I noticed that and I was like, well, she specifically said, what's your title? So. That's right. I, know, um, I was thinking work title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been almost five years and well, it has been five years and it still feels pretty weird and a little too formal for my personal taste. Yeah, but. I mean, you've got like the hat and yeah. the cute glasses <laughs> and the button up, like buttoned all the way up. Like, oh, yeah, that's I don't new. Know. That's a new You're thing not, I'm like, trying out. Feeling reverendy to me right now? No, I'm not. Yeah, well, I don't normally feel reverendy to myself either. So, <laughs> for posterity's sake, uh, my title is also the Reverend Spencer Hatcher. <laughs> is that on LinkedIn? I'm not sure I even have a LinkedIn. It is my email signature, and it's on my business card. Mm -hmm. The Reverend Spencer E. Hatcher. Apparently, middle initials are really important. Very important. <laughs> Lady pastors. Okay, reverend and priest are the words used in this church, but same, same to me. 
They're both in their early 30s. They're, you're 33 too? Mm-hmm. Those are young. <laughs> <laughs> Do we look older? No, but you're like married with the kid, like mm-hmm. you were saying. Well, kid on the way, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yep. I was thinking you're older, but only because of that. You look very dewy. Someone and young. I, someone carded me the other day, and I was like, "Thank you, Jesus." <laughs> I was like, "You just made my night." He like it was like not even like he wasn't carding everyone. It was like legitimately because he didn't think I was 21. Oh, and right. I was Like this is awesome. <laughs> These two are adventurous and funny and have the ability to make you feel like a friend. They're also wise and passionate. Being just so compelled by the person of Jesus that I was like, oh, I could spend the rest of my life talking about this dude and I, that would probably be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, like I actually think there's sort of infinite amounts of redemption left for the world <laughs> um, and in the world. Um, sometimes it just doesn't feel like that's true of the church. So we're going to hear about their journey to become reverends, what they love about it, and also what work the church needs to do, to use Spencer's words, to be redeemed. But let's start at their beginning. Spencer grew up in Maryland, Maggie in Ohio. And then the stars aligned for this dynamic duo to meet in Berkeley, California at seminary. What was the best part of the program? Meeting Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I mean, meeting Maggie very specifically. And also, I think the best thing were the relationships and the conversations that we got to have. And just really being as much of as it was absolutely frustrating and we like got on each other's nerves and it was a little navel gazy at times as much as all of those things were true it was a really unique experience to be in a place surrounded by people that were also asking these like impossibly big questions and struggling with what they'd known and what they believed in and the classes themselves really kind of broke open something in me but then we would go afterwards on the regular down to this pizza place called Laval's after and we get a couple of pictures of beer and we'd be like what the hell are we doing yeah like what is happening what are we doing why are we here I I am broken and I think those are the moments that I feel most grateful for like the feeling of not being in this alone and also of folks that like we didn't all get along all the time and it continues to be a group where like when shit hits the fan or there's stuff to talk about, like it's a group of people that you can be like, oh my gosh, this happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Send help. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going through this process where you have a lot of like eyes on you. You know, you're specifically if you're in on the track mm-hmm. towards ordination to become a, a priest or a deacon, there's also like a constant um, undertone of evaluation that you're experiencing. And so to have other people who are also experiencing that with us, with me, was really good. And yeah, I mean. What do you mean evaluation? Like the process towards becoming a priest in the Episcopal Church is very long and there's a lot of group discernment. And so you have starting 18 months probably before you even go to seminary, you have People asking you questions about your personal life, people praying with you, people um, helping you discern what your gifts and skills are and what and whether or not those match up to the call of ordained ministry. And so while that's really helpful and it can be a really beautiful and, and fruitful process, it also just 
sometimes can feel overwhelming with how many people know your business, how Mm -hmm. many people are keeping tabs on like what you're doing in school and like how many people are following up with, um, not only like the, you know, the priest that I, that was sponsoring me, but also like the bishop from my home diocese, the people at the seminary are also kind of their own conversation with each other about like, for lack of a better word, like our conduct, our performance, Mm -hmm. you know, in school and that sort of thing. That sounds completely terrifying, actually. Yeah, it's it's. In, I'm getting like help. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it it's like um, it, it can be a little overwhelming. So just to know that everyone else there was experiencing that, and also experiencing the deep questioning, and I think this is like something that I really value about my our friendship. Generally, is like this constant question of like, what are we doing here, and is it okay that I feel this way? Because like in some ways I've entered into this life where I've responded to what I and others have discerned as a call for my life and my vocation. But like on any given Tuesday, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm not cut out for this. Mm -hmm. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm not qualified for this. And just to have that network of people who have like gone and walked that journey to be like, okay, yes, I also feel that. Mm-hmm. is really it's just really important Maggie mentioned this group discernment process and the call of ordained ministry but this is some churchy language also used in the EWCCCV so what does a calling mean I think to me call has been sort of twofold and one is like a small inner voice that says, and that has pulled me towards specific, maybe not specific things, but specific questions or specific people, um, or has made me kind of wonder about the possibility of specific things. So that sort of like internal tug towards something. And then at least for me, call has a lot of times been getting an affirmation of that voice from somebody else. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. someone else pointing out something that they saw in me, asking me a question about whether or not I have thought of something for myself. And so I think that that has been a really big way that call has played out. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I think it gets talked about a lot, at least within the Episcopal Church, around that sort of call to ordained life. I don't mean to bunny quotes that as that as though that's not important um, because it is important. And I think call is actually like just a lot bigger than that. And we can sort of shortchange what we mean when we talk about call when the only way it gets talked about is like, do you want to be an ordained person mm-hmm. in the Episcopal Church? Mm-hmm. Because I think there's a lot of ways that people are called into a lot of different vocations mm-hmm. that have nothing at all or maybe everything to do with ordained ministry. Right, right. Or non-ordained ministry, maybe. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Just, like, being a human. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, it's really funny because my... I resonate with what Spencer's saying when your, like, internal wonderings are matching external, whatever, communication that you have with people or whatever. But mine kind of started from the external and, and went inward. Mm-hmm. So I was working at a, an Episcopal summer camp, And like every time we did communion, I would like start crying (laughs) towards the end of the summer, not like every single day, but like, and there was something about knowing that that 
rhythm to my life was coming to an end. And, and so that one of the women who was affiliated with the, she was like a camp chaplain and she was a chaplain to the staff and she's a priest. And she was like, mm, I think it's time for you to like do this. And I was like, what are you talking about? I want to go to grad school to be a speech therapist or some, <laughs> some bullshit. I don't know. And, uh, and she's like, no, you should at least do the discernment because the discernment process is designed to help you figure out what your call is, right? whether or not it's being a priest or, or being a speech therapist or being a social worker mm-hmm. or, you know, all the other things that I tossed around in the old noggin before I, just submitted to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that I really resonated with that part of it. And then I think for me in terms of my call as a Christian person is just like being just so compelled by the person of Jesus that I was like, well, I could spend the rest of my life talking about this dude and I, that would probably be fine. Mm-hmm. So the institution of the church that's another story but the person of Jesus is like that was a compelling force towards my agreement to go into this like long lengthy process in the in the church world so that name That makes sense to me. A combination of internal longing and questions leading you and external validation that those are the right questions to be asking. I also want to note that it was a woman chaplain that validated Maggie's feeling. And that's not to say that a man wouldn't have done that, only that my summer camp didn't have a woman chaplain. So how wonderful that she had a picture of what a future ordained life could look like for her. It made it a possibility. They both talked about exploring big questions in seminary. So what transitions did they make in their beliefs during that time? Gosh, a lot of things. I think, so our theology class was the one that I feel like perpetually brought up some really, really big questions. So I think one was, there's this whole area of theology, which like the fancy word is soteriology, which is sort of the cross and what it means. And I had this idea, right, this like really neat tied up with a bow idea of this like sacrificial moment of love and that it was right like the work that I'd done was that it was not this moment of violence that we were glorifying it was this like moment of sort of sacrificial self-giving which felt neat (laughs) right and then I remember we read a book that really pointed it out in our Old Testament class, which was by Renita Weems, and it was called Battered Love. And then we read another book in our theology class, and I can't remember its name, but it was basically really critiquing this idea of like sacrifice. Um, And it was a womanist interpretation, which sort of pointed the straight line between what I was, what I had just so decided was like a neat and convenient way to sort of separate out things and pointed to the reality that that really held people within systems of oppression and violence and abuse and how there were in some ways like a a straight line between what I was doing in that. And that was one of those moments for me where I was like, oh shit, this all matters. Right. Like more than painting a pretty picture in my head and like doing my own work to decide that like my Christian pacifism is played out, right? Like there are so many implications to all this. Um, you mean like more from a 
systemic perspective versus just your personal. Exactly. From like, from the systemic perspective, like then in that moment, I think I saw a new something, which I already probably would have told you that I knew, which is that there are very real and in some ways, it's not an exaggeration to say life or death consequences to the ways that we believe and then the ways that we choose to communicate that belief. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those moments where I sort of saw the line from a belief to a consequence that's sort of just devastating mm. and like the exact opposite of what I would want to put out in the world. Dr. Renita Weems' book, Battered Love, explores the puzzling ways in which the Old Testament Hebrew prophets' portrayals of divine love, compassion, and conventional commitment often became associated with battery, infidelity, and the rape and mutilation of women. Sounds like a heavy area of study. Back to what Maggie discovered at seminary. What about you? I mean, nothing's going to be really that profound compared to that, but... (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely, I mean, I think just overall, just like the the level of nuance that exists in how we understand and talk about God is very, like everyone has a theology, right? Like everyone has some understanding of what they think God is or isn't, or if God does or doesn't exist. Like everyone has some sort of opinion on that. And so one of the most helpful things I learned in seminary was like understanding how to like listen to what people are saying and in my head make connections about what, what it is that they're actually communicating that they believe in. Mm. Um, and I think that helped a lot in like chaplaincy work. You know, most priests have to do a, um, an internship as a hospital chaplain. And, and so listening to people say things like I'm being punished or God's punishing me for my behavior or my sins or whatever with this illness, that is a theological statement. Whether or not I agree that God would punish someone, that's still an understanding that they have about who God is and how God functions in the world. And so just like understanding how to to listen to people and parse out what what kind of statements they're making and then and then asking questions that like ask them to dig deeper into that is really I think that was something that really changed for me in seminary I think I also like came from Ohio and I thought I was like kind of liberal in Ohio but then I came to Berkeley and I was like okay (laughs) Um, so like a very specific example is I remember this so clearly I used to think that women, I never had a problem, like I was never like women shouldn't breastfeed in public, but I, my stance was like, they should know that when they do that, people will be uncomfortable or some people could be uncomfortable. And I remember we read this essay in seminary that was basically about how women are actually like the best metaphor for Jesus because they feed people with their body and their blood gives life to the world and I was like and of course they're talking about menstruating and breastfeeding and I was like this is some Berkeley shit right here and I'm really into it and I remember calling my friend and she always would give me a hard time about me saying that's you know like whatever and I was like listen to this thing I'm reading right now and she was like oh they got you they did you know and so uh, it was just like little things like that here right. and there where I was like my understanding of myself and my place in the world and I think just overall my capacity for understanding and, and empathy was just like increased tenfold mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So did it give you all the answers? Zero <laughs> percent. It gave me all the questions. <laughs> no answers. No answers. What is, what is it? You, do, have you guys read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. Really? I, I know what it is, but I haven't read it. Yeah. Dude, that's like Theology 101. you yeah. got to start with Hitchhiker's Guide okay. to the Galaxy. Okay. Yeah. Deal. Add it to the Because the whole um, kind of the catchphrase is like the answers to the universe and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sign me up. Right. <laughs> The quote is, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. In seminary, they had the opportunity to discover not all the right answers to theology, but empathy toward the nuances of theology that each human being may hold, and how our theology affects how we view ourselves, others, and thus actively affect the world in individual and systemic ways. So with all those questions, is there anything that they're sure about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are days when I have to, like, recenter myself and figure out how to find confidence in this, like, deeply held belief. So it's not unshakable in the sense that, like, things don't hit me in hard. But I think on my on my hardest and worst day, what I believe to be true is that God breathed life into some dirt and said that that dirt was good. And that means us. And that means that there is like the capacity to be that good dust, dirt, stuff. And that that's true. And when I'm not sure that anything else is true, (laughs) which is a lot, (laughs) which is a lot, um, that is one of my centering core beliefs and like that's the lens I think that I look at the world which is not easy all the time but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's the thing I've decided is true and if I'm wrong I can live with that right Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah I was gonna say something similar and this actually comes from Rachel Held Evans book inspired she basically says like I'm paraphrasing here, of course. Um, the story, like the gospel or the story in of the person of Jesus is the story that she's like willing to stake everything on. And, and like what Spencer was just saying, like even if that's the story I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong about that, it's still the story that I choose to engage with and, and help me navigate and understand the world. I think I think the last line of her quote is like, and if I'm wrong about that, then so be it. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, does that mean I believe every word of the Bible is literally true? No, but the story speaks to a greater truth that I think speaks goodness into the world, and that, for me, that's good enough. One of the other things I'm, I'm confident about, and I can't always see it, <laughs> but I'm confident that there has been a way that is different from the way that we choose on the regular that breeds like violence and and hurt and harm that there has been there has been a different way that the whole time and mm-hmm. that it the, the task is not intended to be an impossible one but one that just takes all of us 
all the time. <laughs> Community is absolutely essential to this way of life. Mm-hmm. And understanding that we are not just out there for ourselves and that it's important the relationships that we have with each other and the way we function as groups. I think like the institution of the the church is not perfect and but I still think it's the best for me for my personal life like the best way I have of understanding Jesus and also like loving the world as Jesus would have me love it is being engaged in community that's like where everyone is trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure about that even though on any given Sunday the specifics of that are nebulous. I still <laughs> right. think we have to be together to do it well. Right. These two now reverends were raised in the Episcopal Church, but there are intersections, cultural touch points Maggie and Spencer had with other denominations and theology. I grew up and sort of the church we attended was Episcopalian and I lived with my grandma for a time and uh, my grandmother's, she just passed away, but she was a staunch Southern Baptist. Uh So... I got baptized in the Southern Baptist Church. So sort of the intersection of Episcopalianism and Southern Baptist. Uh-huh. Um, and I went to a Catholic school for a few okay, years. Okay, there's a lot going so on there. I got my first Bible thrown at me in a Catholic school. So like somewhere in there is the grounds, is the grounds of my... So when the Bible smacked you in the head, you were like, I need to be a reverend. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it was this like wild argument where we were we had to read the Bible and it was one of the gospels. And I was like a little bit of a smart ass at that point, but I genuinely was at not at that point. <laughs> just then. Only then. Yeah, just very finite amount of time. <laughs> I but I wasn't trying to be until I realized I had done something and then I like dug in. Um And it's this passage, and I don't even remember which of the Gospels it's in, which makes me probably a really bad priest, but it was, um, and Mary was a virgin until the birth of Jesus. Um, And I said, like, oh, I knew about, like, translations of the Bible, right, that there's, like, language errors. And so I meant this question in all genuineness, assuming that it was some sort of translational weirdness, right? I, like, bought it, the ever virginity of Mary. And so I said, like, what does it mean? when it says until the birth of Jesus and my religion professor at the time or teacher like rigidly stood and he was like well not what you want it to mean and I was like well I don't want it to mean anything I just am asking you what it means like what does the word mean what's happening here and he just got like really upset and he just kept repeating that it doesn't mean what you want it to mean. And then at that point I realized I was like hitting on something that was, I was on to something and I was like, well, I don't, what do you think I want it to mean then? (laughs) (laughs) And so we changed the subject and then we were talking about it in the hall afterwards, like a couple of us in the class and we're like, what just happened? And he overheard. And so the next day he came into the class and he was like, and I heard you, some of you talking about how, oh, you got Mr. So-and-so you got me. And then he, he like picks up his Bible and he throws no. it down on top of my desk. And he was like, you didn't get me. And I remember going home dude, at that point. <laughs> and I didn't tell my mom because I knew she would be 
horrified and would like have marched herself in there. <laughs> but I declared like silent war on him, <laughs> which turned into um, we had to do these journals where we were supposed to sort of journal about our deep spiritual insights that we were having based on the different parts of the Bible. And so I just decided to be as aggressively anti-religious as was possible in my journals. These were not like really things I felt, but we learned about blaspheming about the Holy Spirit that we didn't learn what that was, but that it was like the unforgivable sin. Right. And so I wrote like pages upon pages of journal entries about (laughs) all of the times that I had recently blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Only because he would read them and write like copious amounts of responses (gasps) trying to like win us back, I guess. And so that was just for the rest of the year. I like declared war against him in my journal entries, which I just would <laughs> love. The to- most introvert, passive aggressive right? war you just could ever wage. So petty. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was full petty. Only petty. Um, and I wish I had those journals. Oh, bye. Yeah, me like, too. Me too. I would have that framed on my wall right yeah. now. I would love to read about it now. <laughs> The verse from the Bible is in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 25, talking about Joseph. Including verse 24, it says he, quote, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The virgin thing is pretty important to most Christian denominations because it indicates this miraculous moment, right? It's part of the theology that Jesus wasn't only a man, but also divine. Now, this piece about being a forever virgin makes no difference to Protestants, but I think it is important to Roman Catholic theology, as it elevates Mary to a higher degree. Anywho, obviously, 11-year-old Spencer's teacher was pretty defensive about it. Do you now know what he was thinking you were trying to get at? I think he just thought from the beginning that I was trying to be a smartass and poke holes in the Roman Catholic tradition of the virginity of Mary. Oh. Like, I think he thought that I just wanted to try and tear down that piece of their belief. Got it. Um, But you were really just like... When she birthed the baby, then was she not a virgin anymore? Or did then she get to have sex after Jesus Jesus came? Like, what is the timeline here? Right, right. Or like, does this Greek word mean something very right. different that we put in still until, but really means totally forever afterwards also? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I didn't, I was not trying to pull like a gotcha on him. I feel like that was a valid question. <laughs> Thank so. you. I feel so affirmed. 11-year-old Spencer is... You were only 11? I think so, 11 or 12. Oh my gosh. I went to Christian school and they would have like blacked out the word virginity. (laughs) Like you can't even read that word. (laughs) I think it was like whispered. (laughs) For sure, for sure. (laughs) So she had touch points within the Southern Baptist and Catholic traditions. And they both had classic evangelical experiences as well. Christian rock concerts, and altar calls, which if you've been listening to this series, you know all about. I'm a pretty Episcopalian through and through, although I have a special place in my heart for like Christian rock concerts because one of our youth ministers would take us to those, you know, the kind with the altar calls and stuff. And I think we were like the only mainline Protestants there, um, which was also an interesting experience. But I don't know. I was too young at the time to really understand what was going on. But they're like, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come down here. And I was like, 
Okay, cool. That's how I got tricked into <laughs> baptism number two. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. They had an altar call where you could get baptized? So, yeah, it was, we went to Hershey Park with my grandmother's Southern Baptist Youth Group. Which Hershey Park is like an amusement park in Pennsylvania. And at the end, they had this Christian rock concert and people would get on in the middle. And then there was this point in the end when it was like, take a step forward if you are having a good time. And so like everyone stepped forward. And it was this series of like, take a step forward if you made friends today. And so I stepped forward. Right. And then you're right up. You're like up by them. And then he's like, take a step forward if you're ready to accept the Lord Jesus as your personal savior. I mean, by that point, I'm like, his eyes are on me. (laughs) You're like, where did everyone else go? Right. And like, you know, my youth minister is next to me because he's been stepping forward because he's had fun and he's made friends and he's here (laughs) and so I was like oh god I guess I stepped forward now so I stepped forward and then he my youth pastor got so excited gave me a big hug and then the next Sunday I was getting baptized (laughs) at my grandmother's Southern Baptist Church because I committed my life to Christ at Hershey Park at a rock concert yeah surprise right baptism number two oh my gosh it's not really allowed (laughs) Okay, so is that kind of like altar call prayer thing part of the Episcopal tradition? No. 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 Okay. (laughs) No, that was very unique. Well, it's not unique in the world, but unique to my experience as an Episcopalian up until that point. Yeah. So how do you get saved then if you don't step up to the stage and then pray the prayer? Jesus. Grace. Grace. Jesus and grace. <laughs> that could just happen any old time, any old where. And I think that's the difference, right? There's not like a moment. So there's the idea that baptism does a thing. Baptism sort of marks you, seals you. You're actually okay before, even if that doesn't happen. But there's like this moment where baptism's still a thing, but it can also happen when you're a baby. So it's done on your behalf. But there's not really like a moment when it happens in the Episcopal Church. Sort of it's like you're... Christian journey is like the the lifetime of doing it Mm. and like sort of whether or not you're saved is almost not the question Mm -hmm. I think I think that I mean that keep going let's see what you mean no I mean I I think (laughs) like I remember being asked that question but I don't that's like not that's not the way I think in general there are for sure exceptions in the Episcopal Church, but I don't think in general that's a way that the conversation happens. I think generally we're pretty uncomfortable <laughs> talking about sort of salvation because of its alternative, right? So it's sort of like the continuum of saved or not saved, but we just don't. don't it's not the language that we would use yeah. to talk about whether or not we're, or it's not even a whether or not. Right, it's like a, yeah. that's just not how. Yeah, in the Episcopal Church, we talk about our relationship to Jesus or our relationship to the grace of of Mm -hmm. Jesus. That's like a free gift that we've been given. And the language of saved is not very common Mm -mm. of being saved or, yeah, or especially an event of being saved is like very unusual. For people who have like grown up, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. there are people in the Episcopal Church who have different faith backgrounds. But yeah, which is where I think like evangelism becomes different. Two, because I remember like the mission trips that we went on with my grandmother's church were about like how many people did you save, right? And to save them was to have a conversation with them that was anywhere between like 10 seconds and 30 minutes where they then said a prayer at the end, right? And you really kept track in, in that way. And it's very 
different. Like just that whole sort of language and ethos around that is really different. Mm-hmm. I would say the closest thing we have is baptism mm-hmm. to like a moment. Like that at the end of the baptism, they the like the priest will put a cross on your, usually your forehead and they say you're sealed, you're sealed as Christ's own forever. Mm-hmm. So that's the closest approximation I would say that we have to an event of being saved. But we do have confirmation, which I think is what adult baptism is in other traditions, which is this moment where, especially for folks who were baptized when they were infants, um, where they claim the faith as theirs. That might be another moment on the path, but I think it is like more of a, of like a lifelong process than a particular moment and not even a process that you like, I think that you have to get to a certain place in order to be in or out, but just like that a vocation of being a Christian is, is one that you're on sort of forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that seem fair? Yeah, like there's not a moment where you're like, I'm a Christian, I accept Jesus, and now my my time spent wrestling with that those questions is over, and I'm like, now I'm good. You know, mm-hmm. there's not mm-hmm. there's not that sense mm-hmm. in our tradition. It's like a, a life orientation and a commitment to when you veer off track in this, and not off track in the sense of like bad behavior, but like when other things in your life become more important than than God, than a commitment to reorienting your life so that you move in the direction of the divine. Yeah, but it's not like a moment or like a light switch. Which I guess is, you know, now that we've, we're sort of stumbling our way into an answer to your very simple question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the Episcopal services, almost always, with with the exception of one one season typically, have have a confession that are a part of them. So there is this like recognition that there is a repeated need to call upon the moments when you strayed and the recognition that sort of that forgiveness and re reincorporation is like a perpetual thing. So I guess mm-hmm. that might be like another point to around that, that might be starting to get a little akin to this idea of sort of salvation. Mm-hmm. We would not use that language, but no, I think- we would use the language of reconciliation. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. when we say the confession every week, we are entering into a reconciled relationship mm-hmm. that is like always reconciled. And we need to remind <laughs> ourselves that it is on a weekly basis, right? Like the whole purpose of the church is reconcile reconciliation. Yeah. Which admittedly is one of the weirder things, one of the more beautiful and also one of the weirder things about being a priest. I don't know. I'm not sure. Have you done like a reconciliation of a penitent? Oh, like hearing a confession? Yeah. Not in a formal setting though. But at the bar on Friday night, you can find me. (laughs) I hear all kinds of weird stuff. (laughs) So I think it really points to like the tension that you just said, which is that like you're already always reconciled and... So there's this a service that I think plays out a lot of the way that people think that it does, except we're not sort of in tiny booths talking to each other through screens. But that moment where folks ask to have their sins is the language that they use often, but most of the time it's just kind of a, a brokenness in relationship or like a struggle that they've been having. Mm-hmm. 
And then as a priest, the words in the service that we're supposed to say are like, you, you are forgiven, which is this really strange, at least for me, moment of being like, I'm saying this, but I'm not, like, you already are. Yeah, you're not bestowing forgiveness. You are, like, highlighting the fact that God has already forgiven them. Yeah. Yeah, but it feels, the language sometimes feels like, yeah, like, even in the the regular Sunday Mm -hmm. worship, the prayer that the priest says after the confession is, like, like, forgive you all your, you know, it's, like, very, like, Mm -hmm. it feels like it's coming from the priest, but it's not. It's that we're just, we're just a vessel. Um. Yeah. All right, we ventured into the differences between some of the theology and practices of evangelicalism versus those Maggie and Spencer practice in their denomination. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and or salvation. Another difference, again, as you've heard repeatedly in this series, is around sexuality and sexual orientation. Was there theology around your sexuality? Like there is for evangelicals? (laughs) Well, I grew. Well, let me just preface this all by saying I grew up in Ohio, so it's more conservative there than it is here. Like, for example, my wife grew up, and they had a gay priest in their church, and so she had queer representation in leadership in her church from childhood. I did not have that. I didn't have really a lot of queer representation generally. Like, I can't think back on my childhood to one queer adult that I knew that was out. Mm -hmm. So that's just different. You know, we're just in a different cultural. Landscape. Landscape. Yeah, that's a (laughs) great word for it. So for me personally, that didn't exist, but it did exist in the Episcopal Church at that time. And there were certainly queer priests. Okay. Um, I mean, to to answer your earlier question, it's like we didn't talk a lot about sex in my youth group. Like we talked about it a little bit and it was more like you should wait till marriage. But it wasn't like the issue for us the way it is with like purity culture and all that stuff. It was like an issue that we sometimes talked on and abstinence was like what we were taught. And we weren't really in the church context, like exploring what it means to like have a body and be a sexual being, right? You know, right? Um, and I think the Episcopal Church has come a long way in that. Like, I taught a class last year for high schoolers about faith and sexuality, and so that's changing, but certainly not a big topic of conversation for us. But I didn't really, I think because of lack of representation, I didn't really understand myself to be queer until I was like in college Mm -hmm. because my only image I had of queer people was like what you see on TV, which is like super flamboyant men or like at the time, like super butch women. Mm -hmm. Right. And like that was what I thought gay people were. And I was like, well, I'm not really that. Although I have become more that over time. (laughs) (laughs) It's more towards the, you know, like uh, masculine of center. (laughs) Um, in representation, but like growing up, I didn't, I didn't identify with that. So then I was like, I kind of knew something was like a little different about me, but I didn't know what it was. And I was pretty sure it wasn't that because I wasn't like, you know, like a super butch short hair wearing cargo shorts type of person that I saw on TV. Right. So, and then I was in college and I met like actual queer people, not just like the media version of queer people. And I was like, oh, maybe I, maybe this is the thing that's different. And now then you look back on your whole life and you're like, of course, like when my camp friends were like crushing on super hot counselor boy, I was more worried about super hot counselor girl. You know, like that sort of thing. And like at the time I was like, oh, she's cool. I want to be like her. But then looking back on it, you're like, oh, I understand. 
Um, so I think like my coming out was more about like seeing myself represented in just the world around me generally and not just in the church. But I think that that's something that I like hold very, um, I know that somewhere out there I'm representing something for someone, Mm -hmm. a future in a church that they can have Mm -hmm. if that's how they feel or that's how they are called to do. And so that kind of keeps me hanging on sometimes because I didn't have that. And I think my, you know, I think I would have come out a lot earlier if I would have been like, oh, there's queer people and they're like accepted in the church and they're in church leadership and they have, you know, a family and they're just regular people. Even though Maggie didn't hear all the negative messages about her sexuality that other folks have received in church, it didn't necessarily make coming out any easier for her. So I came out in college. It was a very dramatic scene. I had kind of come to terms with it for like several months, and I had only told this one friend. And then I like eventually was like, I have to tell my parents because I want to tell other people and start living into this truth. But I was like just so devastated by the idea that my parents would find out from someone else before I told them. And so I was like, I can't tell anyone until I'm ready to tell them. And I, one day I just couldn't take it anymore. And I called my mom and I went to Ohio state, which is, and I'm from Cincinnati, which is about a hundred miles away. So it's not that far that my mom couldn't like meet me somewhere. So we, we met at a Bob Evans, which if you've ever been to Ohio or anywhere in the Midwest, it's like a diner chain basically. And I was like, I really need to talk to you. Can you meet me at Bob Evans on exit 45 or whatever it was? And she's like, okay. Or is everything okay? And I was like, um, no. And, uh, she gets in the car with me and I'm just crying and I just can't get it out. You know, she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, Ooh. and she's like, okay, well, let's go through all the bad stuff first. She's like, are you pregnant? And I was like, no. And then she's like, thinks about it. And she's like, are you gay? And I'm like, I guess that's the second worst thing you can think of, <laughs> you know, oh which gosh. is like, I don't think that's how she meant it. And like, you know, we've been on a journey ever since then and generally overall very like accepting and all that. But I just remember being like, I'm so sure that's the second worst thing that you could possibly imagine. Um, so anyway, then we went inside and I had a BLT and I could like barely eat it because I was like, <sighs> You were clearly nervous. Like, mm-hmm. what What were you nervous about? I think the biggest thing I was nervous about was that, because at that time I had never had a relationship. And so I, I knew, like, I just knew deep down that I was queer, but I just, I hadn't, like, ever been in a relationship with a woman. So I was like, what if I open this whole can of worms and upset the family system? And like, what if I'm wrong? Or like, I just had this deep sense of like, once I say this out loud, I can't ever unsay it. Right. And so like, there was just a fear there of like, changing something that in an innate, you know, way of relating to my family, my family Mm -hmm. specifically that I was worried about at Mm -hmm. that time, that like, once it was changed, it was changed forever. Um, Which is true. Like, the minute you are born, your parents have expectations and visions of what your future looks like. And, and that all has to die, you know, in a certain way. And I think that's becoming less true. And parents these days are more like, whatever they become, they become. But like, you know, my parents were thinking about my wedding to a dude when I was born. Right. Right. right, And there was this, I don't know if you want to call it a grieving process, I guess, but like, there's a way in which you have to let that, that person die so that the person that you actually are can live. Right. 
And I think that that experience more than most other experiences in my life was like how I understood that Jesus was with me in that. And Jesus also had died and lived again was like really profound for me. Like I was like, oh, okay. Jesus is inviting me to let myself die. And so I can live mm-hmm. actually in my truth and, and is showing me that that's possible. But yeah, I think that was like my most like real tangible experience of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I remember I was like in my dorm room eating ramen on the floor, just like crying, like <laughs> being gay is so hard. And what are my parents going to say? And blah, blah, blah. And like, I just remember Jesus being like, that's fine. You're fine. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was kind of like that, you know? Um, in a way that felt like, okay, yeah, okay, I guess I'm fine. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you are fine. I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everything is fine. Yeah, everything, I mean, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> but I don't think I would be fine if I, w- if I never let that person mm-hmm. fully die, you know? Yeah. So that was that that dramatic, you know, coming out. But, like, coming out just never ends. It just never ends. It's like every day you meet new people, and they're like, what does your husband do? And you're like, for the love of God, would you just look at me? (laughs) I don't have a husband, you know. Um, And I think think that's changing. That's certainly changing for sure. But, like, it just, it's it's just an ongoing process. But that was the first step in my journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Besides for the one friend I told beforehand. But we were, like, new college friends it was like low stakes at the time you know because i was <laughs> right. like if she hates me then like we've been friends for like three months oh right right um, right although shout out emily you know where you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of funny because i'm so stoked about women in church leadership mm-hmm. i'm so stoked about like gay representation in church leadership mm-hmm. you know and my kid is just like i'm in- Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because it's not a big deal. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. like, of course, why wouldn't there be? They, they right. like, don't understand the opposite of that, mm-hmm. which is great. <laughs> right. It's totally great. I saw this meme yesterday that was, like, millennials coming out to their boomer parents, and, like, the meme is, like, Joey and Phoebe from Friends, and they're, like, making horrified faces. <laughs> and then it's, like, Gen Z coming out to their, like, Gen X parents, and it's, like, Joey and Phoebe, and they're, like, having these, like, cute <laughs> smiles, like they're watching their baby take their first steps. And I was, like... I'm really happy for this, mm-hmm. actually. Like, this makes me so happy. And I am I just, I know that that's not everywhere. And I know that being in the Bay Area, we're, like, a little bit privileged in that way or a lot privileged in that yeah. way. But, like, it is changing. And that's what I want. Like, I don't want people to have to call their mom and cry into a BLT because they don't know if their mom's <laughs> going to still love them at the yes. end of that, you know, conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want that for anyone. No. But, yeah, it is kind of like, I'm out here doing the Lord's work, and you don't even appreciate it. <laughs> right, yeah. right. They don't know all the blood, sweat, and tears that went mm-hmm. into getting them here. In bulletproof vests. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Bulletproof vests. That's part of Episcopal Church history. So it's time for a history lesson, which will include some of Maggie and Spencer's thoughts on making change. So here's the fine print. These are some hot takes coming out this morning. (laughs) Yeah, um, can we just preface this whole section saying 
we do and don't represent the Episcopal yes, Church yes. on a denominational level. Valid point, um, yes. <laughs> and I think that we have views that are, I think, correct. Like, uh, not correct, but, like, allowed, allowable. <laughs> not correct. We, we are correct. We are correct in all of our views. I mean, so question anything... number one is, like, can you be fired? That is what I mean... we should establish. <laughs> no, we won't be fired. We won't be fired. Okay. Okay. Everything is allowable, but whether or not it's, like, socially acceptable yeah is a different you know with that caveat we're going to talk about the episcopal church they're going to mention the term liturgy which is the heart the formula or structure of their religious services so the episcopal church comes from the church of england and the church of england was like all about people being able to understand what it was that they were saying in church on a sunday which is why they like made it into the english language and so the original intent of the Church of England was to be like a contextualized way of being in Christian community that people could understand not doing the services in Latin, for example, because no one knew what was going on. And so the original intent was that this is a contextual way of being Christians. And that was contextual to England in what, like the 1500s? And we are direct descendants of that. And the amount of change to our liturgy that's happened since that time is not enough. (laughs) It's very little. It's very little. So there was a prayer book that was in, what is it, like? 1552? Yeah, something like 1562, something like that. Yeah. And then there was another one in 1928, and then there was another one in 1979, and that's the one we're still using. So that's only four iterations. And there might have been one before the 1552, Mm -hmm. but, like, there's been this a lot. That's happened since 1979 um, in the way that we talk about God in the Episcopal Church, in the way that we understand God, in the way that we understand what it means to be in relationship with one another. And our liturgy as it's written, it doesn't always reflect that. Mm -hmm. But to your second question is like, how much can you change it is actually a lot. These prayers are meant to be kind of like guides. And so say Spencer and I wanted to create our own worship service Mm -hmm. and we wanted to write all the prayers all by ourselves specifically for the prayer around communion, that part of it would have to be approved by a bishop for us to use it and like use it as a prayer to distribute communion to someone Mm -hmm. because the, any priest that's working in a diocese is actually distributing communion on behalf of their bishop. So you're kind of like acting as an agent on behalf of your bishop. And so if you just want to go rogue and do your own thing, your bishop has to say yes to that. Okay. But that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you have to get, you just have to show them your work basically. Like this is the prayer I want to use and make sure that the theology reflected in the prayers is consistent with the theology that we use in, or we have in the Episcopal church. Okay. The one of the rubs in the Episcopal church specifically, and I don't know that it's unique to other churches, but it is a hierarchical, I think you've probably heard at this point, there is this like hierarchical reality to it, right? So there's a bishop which oversees the diocese, which has a lot of priests. And when it comes to the way that that plays out in what is approved for worship, it is actual lived practice that tends to happen before the changes happen at the top level. So there's always this push and pull, which is that we're already going to be behind by the time what's called general convention, which is all of the diocese 
of the entire Episcopal Church come together to make governing decisions for what will happen with the Episcopal Church in the future. Mm-hmm. By the time they get to the point where something is getting voted on and approved, it's already happening. It's already behind. Right, right, right. right. So there is, like, to use the language of reform, is always happening at the local level. Right. And then eventually, when there's enough people agitating and enough people, like, pushing for it, the change can start to come to the top. Sure. So things like when we decide to start ordaining women in the Episcopal Church, by the time they voted on that, people were doing that underground. Right. You know? Right. And then there was, like, a more full celebration of, like, okay, this is legit now. Right. Um, Or when we consecrated the first openly gay bishop. He was elected in his diocese and then voted on later and confirmed. Mm -hmm. Um, So big changes like that are... A little, a little slower. Right. It only happens every three years. So, yep. But so, I think the gift of it is that it's meant to be contextual, right? Like that's the whole purpose of our tradition is that it's meant to be lived out in a way that the people can understand and relate to. And so efforts that you make on a local level to create something that speaks to the people that you're trying to reach is very in line with the Episcopal church because that's the whole purpose of it. So, I think that's like something that we sometimes forget about because mm-hmm. we have all these beautiful written prayers and books and stuff that we're really attached to. But the whole purpose of them was to open up people's experience and give them more access mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. put barriers up between the worshiper and the, you know, what's going on, the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's been too long since we updated it, which yep. is why things like trying new types of prayers and that sort of thing are really important and also really in line with our tradition. At its best. (laughs) The lived experience of the tradition is sometimes a little more resistant to change. Yes. (laughs) Because actually the liturgy, which is just like the words we say back and forth, the rituals that we do together, is actually pretty loose in terms of like what's on paper that you have to do or not do. But the tradition, like the way we've used that over time has become more rigid because we have these resources, these prayer books, and people over time have just stuck to those, even though they're meant to be more like a suggestion or a guide. And so, like, in practice, it's more rigid than it actually is in decree, if you want to call it that. Okay. And and where, to the, to the first part of sort of where it came from, the Episcopal Church would trace the liturgies back to first and second century texts. Like, what is of practicing communities, which is where I think what happens is that people developed this liturgy and this like style of worship over time. So there's not, contrary to some people's belief, there was not this moment when God instilled the Book of Common Prayer and said, this is the way you'll do it. But it does. So there's like source documents that that point to different moments in the liturgy. Um, that have been pulled to and changed. And there we should know this more than we do. I mean, I should know this more than keep I do. Going, keep going, keep going. You're doing statements. great. <laughs> um, but there were, there's also political realities that shaped the way that we worship. And that's both in the Church of England, in the, the many times when leadership in England changed in the coming to the United States. We had to figure out what the hell to do with the part where we were swearing allegiance to a queen that we were like, you know, also (laughs) actively rebelling against. (laughs) Complicated. (laughs) And I think you see that now still where 
there's now a push for the prayer book to be updated again to have inclusive language and more fulsome representation of either gender fulsome or uh, language for God and like to change and include some commitments to to creation in the midst of a world that is on fire. And so I think like there is a way in which it is always changing and some people just appreciate change less. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so change is allowed, trying new things is allowed, but also change is hard, especially when something is tradition, which sometimes we interpret as being the right way to do something. Like many Protestant denominations, inclusion of women and queer folks is relatively new. So back to the history of making big change. Women were, it was what, 19, it was the 1970s. Mm -hmm. I think it was like 78. Yeah, late in the 1970s. And it was what's called an irregular ordination, which sounds like such a neat way of doing it. But really, it was like an underground ordination. These women worked with retired bishops. So bishops who were no longer sort of actively involved in their ministry. I think there might have been one exception to that. And basically, they held a secret ordination service. So, so in order rad. to be ordained, mm-hmm. you have to have a bishop lay hands on you. That's part of the ordination process. And it's called apostolic succession. So the mm. idea that this is like back to Jesus laying his hands and then the apostles laying their hands. So there's this this real physical part of it. And so these women had a secret ordination, um, which people tried to stop, which people then boycotted after it happened. And I think in in the same way, it happened by people just doing it. And Bishop Jean Robinson, who was the first gay bishop. Well, openly gay. Openly gay bishop, yes. We don't know about all the bishops going back. (laughs) Right. In fact, we're pretty confident. But (laughs) um, had to wear a bulletproof vest in the beginning, too far, too far into his ministry. And that actually caused a significant rift in the Episcopal Church. Oh, really? A lot of churches broke off, and there was a lot of, you know, diocese breaking up and churches leaving the Episcopal Church. So it wasn't like a, oh, this is all, like, beautiful and rainbows and we love gay people. It was very hotly contested. Okay. Um, So when was that? That was in 2005. Okay. Or maybe 2003. I think 2003. Yeah. Yeah. So recent. Yeah, Yeah, very recent. recent. Okay. In the Win series of this show last year, we talked about how change is made. In that story of corporate organizational change, we said it starts with a small group which grows and then doesn't get to see the big payoff at the end. And often they don't get to see the change fully come to fruition because they're fired or shunned or in the case of social justice, political, and religious change, straight up murdered or maimed. The changes the Episcopal Church has made to become more welcoming and safe is no different, in that there were boycotts, church splits, and even the threat of violence. Things have settled down, but after the flash in the pan of a big change like the ordination of openly gay Bishop Jean Robinson, 
there's still smaller shifts to be made. Within the Episcopal Church, which has come a long way, and which still, I think, has a long way to go, where, like, the normative assumption is that you are cisgendered and heterosexual. Right. Like, I remember learning in seminary mm-hmm. that in in Maggie's Ember Day letter, she had to... Or my spiritual autobiography. Your spiritual, uh, right, that's what it was. Your spiritual autobiography, which is, like, a part of the process that you, you know, when you're in the ordination process, you write this thing to talk about, like, you know, the journey of faith that you've been on. And the advice that she was given was that she had better include in there, like, coming out story, because otherwise, what? It, people it looks would, like you're hiding it, or it looks like you're ashamed or something. Oh, wow. And so I, I, like, I remember we were talking about it and hearing that and being like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, the, So there is still this kind of baked in, if you're going to deviate from the norm in lots of bunny quotes... That you have to sort of make an accounting for it mm-hmm. that I hope <laughs> will not be the way yeah. that it is, right? I even think I then like angry wrote a spiritual autobiography that mm-hmm. included my own coming out as a heterosexual <laughs> and like it. the moment that I was aware that I got the little flutter yeah. in mm-hmm. my heart <laughs> when boys were around. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, you it's did absurd. a lot of rage journaling. So yeah. I, I sent it. Oh, I yeah. sent my rage, rage letter. My ra- <laughs> so much rage journaling. Um, but like that would have been, it would have been weird, right? Had I included that in my spiritual autobiography, it would have been weird. Mm-hmm. People would have been like, what are you doing? Like yeah. this, my mentor would have said like delete and did when I sent it to her. She's like, no, <laughs> you're deleting this. Section. You're like, I'm making a point here. Though. Right. Um, and that, you know, I think that's that's the work that the church still has to do, right? Like, so the policy has changed, mm-hmm. right? That happened, and it's not close to done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's also other work to be done in the church around, like, the compulsory or, like, the heteronormativity of, like, okay, that's fine if you're gay, but, like, if you're going to sleep together, you better be married, mm-hmm. Um and that's not historically been a part of queer culture because no, we couldn't get married for so long. And so like, I mean, it's becoming more so now, but historically hasn't been a goal of a queer relationship is to end in marriage. And so like, what does that mean for the church? If you're working, if you're working for the church and now you have to be forced into this like heteronormative kind of situation, which I mean, it's complicated too, because like marriage in the church means something different than it means legally. Right. So it is complicated, and, and you could argue that the church is allowed to have that standard because of what marriage means in the church world. But, like, I think it's more of a vestige of, of heteronormativity than anything else. Mm. Um, and, you know, and also, like, we have, you know, we have transgender clergy now, and but, like, less than representation than we should in that because it – it's like baby steps, right? It's like, let's find the most cisgender people who are queer that are like in marriages with kids and like that look the most straight possible, even (laughs) though they're gay and then branching out from there. And so we're definitely making strides in that area, but particularly like trans representation and that sort of thing is still, uh, we're still underrepresented Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. sure. And like non-binary and all that's, you know, it's very, it's coming, but it's slow. Mm Mm-hmm very slow yeah
we all come into community with our own lenses of interpretation. So the shifts require not just organizational policy change, but how we all view something. And maybe that's the part that takes the most time. I asked Maggie to share her coming out story. So to keep it fair and balanced, let's make Spencer share what it's like dating as a reverend. What's your love life? <laughs> What's going on there? Um, there is no there is no love life going on there right now. No. Mm-mm. Okay. Is that how you like it? Like, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like how I like it as in that's some sort of concrete choice that I will have made and will make forever. But especially during COVID, like when the choice was, do I go out on first dates that might wind up being weird, (laughs) right, and Mm -hmm. like awkward, and then I don't get to see the people that I know I like for like two weeks, (laughs) or do I just continue to see the people, like it was really clarifying in that moment, right? I was like, yeah, no, it's just not not worth it, no. So we're coming out on the other side of things, and we'll see. It is, I will say, it's like a weird, it is really weird to navigate dating as a an Episcopal priest, especially as a female (laughs) Episcopal (laughs) priest. Like, it's a weird thing. Right, so like, because inevitably, like, I try to avoid answering for as long as possible until they see that I'm like a regular human being. But you can only put out the like, I'm in the nonprofit sector for so long right? (laughs) before it gets to the specifics. And so like at that point, I like to be able to have said a couple of curse words like while holding a beer. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I say I'm a priest, they have a couple of other pieces of information Uh that they can use to view Mm -hmm. that. But it's still, at least in my experience, just not easy for people, Uh, for men. It seems to not be easy for Oh, my gosh. I would think that they would have to be that. Either real confident <laughs> mm-hmm. or a real weirdo. <laughs> right. Well, and that's... Or a real the, confident the weirdo. Right. The non-PG version is that there's some real... There's people who are really into it. <laughs> right. In the way They're not necessarily the ones you want. No. <laughs> right. And like, so it's, it's like they're sort of both ex- mm-hmm. ends uh-huh. of the weird spectrum. Yeah. I find that to be true just in making friends in general yeah. as like a young person who is a clergy it's like people are like oh can I cuss around you or can I like do you drink or like do you you know and people are like weird yep and then they like start drinking and then they're like well I learned in Sunday school this thing and that's Mm -hmm. fucked up and you're like yeah that sounds pretty tough like I had this a lot more in Cincinnati um, particularly queer people like they would find out I was a priest and they'd be like oh my gosh let me dish to you the way the church treated me and that sort of stuff but like it's just like it's hard to navigate it's not very common yeah, like 60% of my first dates winds up actually being pastoral care the moment they find out that I'm a priest. <laughs> it's like deep childhood trauma, stuff around church. So it's, do you enjoy those conversations if it's pastoral care or dishing about their trauma? Or is that just like so tiring and tedious? I think enjoy is not quite the yeah. word. I feel like... I don't enjoy it when I'm on a date, right? Because I'm like, this is not, like, all right. Like, I can feel myself sort of hat shift, right? This is no longer, like, a mutual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel grateful to be in those conversations, right? And that I'm a person that's trusted enough to at least have those conversations. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to pretend that that means I'm trusted. So, like, 
I, I'm always open. And I think part as someone who's both experienced some of the really shitty parts about the church and also who watches the church continue to do really damaging things. Like I want to be a person who's present and listens to those kinds of conversations. So I guess in there's like, again, not quite enjoying, but like that's part of how I understand what I, what I ought to be doing and what I want to be doing. And it is, I mean, it's exhausting. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it is tiring. And I think there are moments when I have to like check the way that that's bringing up things in me and figure out how to deal with those right later. Yeah. This doesn't just impact their dating life. It can make all relationships kind of awkward. Back to Maggie finishing her thoughts about those impromptu pastoral care conversations. Yeah, I think I, I wouldn't say I enjoy it, but I definitely feel like it's part of what we sign up for when we are ordained and we represent the church at all times, even if we're not at a church or serving in that capacity specifically. And so I feel like it's kind of comes with the territory it's hard and like sometimes I just want to be friends with people and like and they're like they just for whatever reason they just only see me in that one way and so um and I find that more with like people who didn't know me before I was ordained or who don't like aren't involved in the church in some way that they just like don't have a frame of reference for how to like be in a relationship with me like even a friendship that doesn't involve like that constant thing but I think I agree with Spencer that like it also feels like a privilege, especially when people have been so hurt by the church to be someone that's like, yeah, I affirm that. And I'm hearing you say that. And I'm not telling you that that didn't happen, or I'm not telling you that that was okay, that that happened to you. Um, and so, especially when it comes to queer people in the church, like I feel really privileged to be able to have those conversations, but I don't always want to do it like on a Friday night while I'm drinking with my friends or whatever. Um, So I usually try to like, can we talk about this another time? You know, like I want to talk to you, but when I, you know. Yeah, but I'm off duty right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or I just want to be able to have a more like full conversation with you and like we're screaming at each other over like karaoke right now. (laughs) It doesn't feel like the best place. Yes. Um, But it's hard. I mean, it's hard to make friends as an adult generally. Like that's just something that we don't talk about enough. But Mm -hmm. like, I think it it's people sometimes don't know how to relate to me, which is is okay. (laughs) You know, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's everything's fine. fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) Yeah. But I do the same thing. You know, like when I like join a new gym or do something like a meetup or something, I try to like avoid bringing it up Mm -hmm. just so I can have a friend for a day. (laughs) Yeah. Dang, a friend for a day? There's also just the curiosity piece. Oh, yeah. Where for, for other people, like, you know, they don't meet women who like young women who do this. And so there's just like a curiosity and a desire. And like, I want to honor that too. Mm-hmm. And it means that oftentimes those are like the only conversations I yeah. get to have right. when I'm meeting people. Right. And being a priest like is definitely a really significant part of who I am and my identity. And also not, Mm-hmm. Not even maybe the most interesting part all the time. Right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that is one of the other challenges. Mm-hmm. And like the stumbling, like even my own family on my dad's side, like now at Christmas time, they only send me like books on the Psalms. Right. <laughs> and then they like apologize when they open a beer in front of me or say a cuss word. I'm like, you knew. Yeah. He's like, I'm also drinking a beer. Like we, I'm standing here, beer in hand. 
Yeah. Also, I don't. You don't want to. Do you want to read this book? <laughs> I don't want to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. I, I feel like. Yeah, sometimes it gets real dire out there. You know, like, <laughs> I just want to like be a normal person in the world. The life of a lady rev seems a little lonely. Here's what keeps them going on the days that are frustrating or annoying. Spencer, <laughs> I know it's starting to feel like a like a love fest, but it's like really there is like something really yeah. beautiful about having a, a close friend that has a similar like job and experience and that sort of thing. Also, like anything that can get me out of my own head, you know, like being part of the world, like riding public transit, that sort of thing, where I'm like. The be all and end all of my life is not whether or not I get this like Sunday school lesson plan finished, mm-hmm. you know, exercising yeah, <laughs> and hanging out with my wife. Your wife was like number four on that list though. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe you could edit that around because yeah. really that's like. Andrea's number one. <laughs> yeah. That's number one. I mean, in the, yeah. I mean, obviously for my life, she's number one. Yeah. <laughs> in the professional sense, there's like a lot of. It can it can just be a lot, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so to yeah to have any coping mechanism for like just for keeping yourself grounded is just so important. Yeah. I always talk about like when I was in seminary, we have a dog, Andrea. Well, we have two dogs now, but when we were in seminary, we just had one. And like I could think that I was doing the most important. Like I'm writing this like theological treatise on whatever something something I'm studying, and like I still have to go pick up my dog's shit. Right. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> And that stuff is, like, so important for me as a person. Like, none of this stuff matters if we're not engaging with the world around us and we're not engaging with creation and the people around us and with the experience of life. You know, if we just hold ourselves up and think that the church is the only thing that matters, then we're in a world of hurt. Yeah. So, I think one of the things is within my work right now, I meet a lot of people who have these cool ideas or have these cool imaginations for things they want to do. And I watch them sort of treading so tenderly or sometimes not, sometimes just like trudging through um, through these beginning stages. And I think like, okay, I can do this for, like I can do this for a while longer. We can do this. Right. We can hang on and we can give each other the time and try and figure out how to open up the space so that like your ideas and your imaginations have slightly more fertile soil come mm-hmm. the time that you're going to step into this. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's one of the other things that like keeps my head in the game when sometimes I just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm over it and feel like there's not a lot of redemption left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not, for for the church specifically, yeah. right? Like, I actually think there's sort of infinite amounts of redemption left for the world <laughs> um, and in the world. Um, sometimes it just doesn't feel like that's true of the church. Yeah, yeah. Thus, they persist in this faith that feels true to them, in the identity that God gave them, in their hope for community, and a hope that there's a different way of living if we could all just do it together. 
As Maggie said, the way that the Episcopal Church began worshiping was meant to bring people in, make the language and practices accessible to everyone. But now, if you step from the street into a service, those structures can be intimidating. Any club you're not a part of can feel that way at first. But as they said, there's probably updates that can be made to make it all a bit more contextual to 2022 and beyond. Meeting Maggie and Spencer gives me hope for the church more broadly. As they stand on the shoulders of the men and women who performed underground ordinations, they will be part of paving the way forward. Without all the answers, but with a passion for reconciliation. Join us next time. We're talking about new things their church and others are doing to reach more people in authentic ways, and maybe even bring in us wandering evangelicals. We'll see. Being a part of something that's new, that's really trying a different thing, that's like intentionally digging into a different level of like authenticity and welcome. That feels kind of good. Like, this is probably heresy. Mm. Like, lots of church is just boring. Mm. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call that a heresy. That's just the truth. <laughs> right. That's just the so, facts. Maybe that old-